You're listening to Our American Stories, and this is Lee Habib. We take you now to a place of myth, a place of legend, the state Mississippi, the place, the crossroads. Our American Stories executive producer Jesse Edwards takes us on a quest to find the place where, according to legend, Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil. And he was born on this day in history in 1911. The Crossroads. Many of us know the story of a young black man who went down to the crossroads at midnight, looking to make a deal with the devil so he could play the blues guitar. Legend has it that it all went down at the intersection of old U.S. Highway 61 and 49 in Clarksdale, Mississippi. It's a busy intersection. With some amazing food at Abe's Barbecue right there on the corner. If you're ever there, you have to try some tamales and the big Abe Barbecue pork sandwich. It's to die for. And you can see the Crossroads Monument right out of the window. Three big blue guitars on a pole with a sign underneath that say, The Crossroads. I'm at the crossroads in Clarksdale, so you hear a lot of traffic right under the big guitar signs. Could this be the real crossroads? If you ask that question around here, you'll get a lot of different answers. Some people insist it's in Clarksdale. Others say it's down the road closer to the Mississippi River in Rosedale at the intersection of Highway 8 and Highway 1. I'm here at the intersection of Highway 8 and Highway 1 in Rosedale, Mississippi. There's a sign that reads... Rosedale was immortalized in Robert Johnson's 1937 recording, Traveling Riverside Blues. In 1968, Eric Clapton's group Cream incorporated the verse going down to Rosedale in their version of Johnson's Crossroad Blues. Although Johnson's original 1936 version of this song did not mention Rosedale, the town has since been associated of a blues man selling his soul to the devil at the crossroads. When I'm going down to Rosedale But some people, especially the old-timers, say their original crossroads is just south of a historic plantation a few miles east of Cleveland, Mississippi. The Dockery Plantation. You better hush, 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 hush. Somebody's calling my name. I'm here at the Dockery Plantation, established by Will Dockery in 1895 and operated from 1937 to 1982 by Joe Rice Dockery. 
It included a post office, a commissary, and a cotton gin. The plantation once employed Charlie Patton, legendary blues musician who inspired such greats as Muddy Waters, Robert Johnson, B.B. King, and Elvis Presley. There's a sign here that asks, Is this the birthplace of the blues? It reads, The precise origins of the blues are lost to time, but one of the primal centers for the music in Mississippi was Dockery Farms. For nearly three decades, the plantation was the home of Charlie Patton, the most important Delta blues musician. Patton himself learned from fellow Dockery resident Henry Sloan and influenced many other musicians who came here, including Howlin' Wolf, Willie Brown, Tommy Johnson, and Robert Pop Staples. I had a chance to meet up with the executive director of the Dockery Plantation Foundation, William Lester. This is the, uh, the birthplace of the blues? Well, you know, B.B. King came here in 1973 and stood in front of the seed house and said if you had to pick one spot, he said, you might as well say it all started right here. And what I think he meant was, uh, obviously he's dead and we can't ask him anymore, but what I think he meant was uh, that probably no one knows where the first blues note was written or the first blues song, or the first blues lick. But so much of the education of the blues went on here at Dockery because Charlie Patton came here as a child. His mother and father, Annie and Bill Patton, brought him here because Mr. Dockery paid the highest wages in the Delta. He paid 50 cents a day uh, when everybody else was paying 40 cents a day. That doesn't sound much to us, but that meant on Friday, Saturday, you got paid. You got an extra day's pay. Here's B.B. King who introduces us to the music of Charlie Patton. In my day, we learned the blues songs from the records and the radio. But back then, blues musicians learned from each other. Willie Brown played here, Sunhouse played here, and here at Dockers, another blues singer was working the fields by day and playing his music by night. He was Charlie Patton, called the father of the Delta Blues. A lot of Mississippi blues men came through Dockery Plantation, and they all came to hear Charlie Patton play the guitar. Here's more from our conversation with William Lester, the executive director of the Dockery Plantation Foundation. Charlie learned how to play the guitar from uh, Henry Sloan. Henry Sloan, a few years later, got on the train and went to Chicago and never came back again. And so Charlie picked up from there and began to play all over the Delta and was one of the earliest recorded blues singers. But look who came here to play with Charlie. Uh, Howlin' Wolf was a child here. Uh, Charlie taught him how to play the guitar here. Pop Staples of the famous Staples singers from Chicago was a child here. Charlie taught him everything he needed to know about being Pop Staples, he claims. He told Robert Palmer that in, uh, when Robert wrote the book Deep Blues in 1950, he interviewed Howlin' Wolf, he interviewed Pops, he interviewed all of them that were still alive. And they all said that they came here to play with Charlie to learn the different um, licks and see what was new. This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. You're listening to Jesse Edwards and his quest to find the legendary crossroads in the Mississippi Delta. When we come back, we'll hear more about Dockery Plantation and how it became the center of the universe for bluesmen back in the day.
This is Lee Habib. Welcome back to Our American Stories. We're following a quest to find the legendary crossroads in the Mississippi Delta with our producer, Jesse Edwards. We now go back to our report with B.B. King, who introduces us to Charlie Patton from Dockery Plantation. In my day, we learned the blues songs from the records and the radio. But back then, blues musicians learned from each other. Willie Brown played here. Sunhouse played here. And here at Dockery's, another blues singer was working the fields by day and playing his music by night. He was Charlie Patton, called the father of the Delta Blues. A lot of Mississippi blues men came through Dockery Plantation, and they all came to hear Charlie Patton play the guitar. Here's more from our conversation with William Lester, the executive director of the Dockery Plantation Foundation. Charlie learned how to play the guitar from... Uh, Henry Sloan. Henry Sloan, a few years later, got on the train and went to Chicago and never came back again. And so Charlie picked up from there and began to play all over the Delta and was one of the earliest recorded blues singers. But look who came here to play with Charlie. Uh, Howlin' Wolf was a child here. Uh, Charlie taught him how to play the guitar here. Pop Staples of the famous Staples singers from Chicago was a child here. Charlie taught him everything he needed to know about being Pop Staples, he claims. He told Robert Palmer that and uh, when Robert wrote the book Deep Blues in 1950, he interviewed Howlin' Wolf, he interviewed Pops, he interviewed all of them that were still alive, and they all said that they came here to play with Charlie to learn the different um, licks and to see what was new. Uh, Willie Brown played here with Charlie a lot. He was his running buddy, and Eric Clapton says there are things that Willie Brown can do that no human can do now unless they could see Willie live do it. So, you know, it must be pretty difficult what Willie did. And so then Willie went on to play with Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson obviously got influenced by Charlie through Willie because they played together. Uh, uh, Willie played with Charlie first for a number of years, and then they had a falling out over a woman, I'm told, and then he went to be with uh, Robert because Robert was the next big up-and-coming star, and so he wanted he was a backup guitarist. Two important characters there in the legend of the Crossroads story, Willie Brown and Robert Johnson. In Robert Johnson's Crossroad Blues, you can hear Robert Johnson call out to Willie Brown in the last verse. You can run, you can run. Tell my friend for Willie Brown. You can run. Tell my friend for Willie Brown. Man with a whole lot of sense said, Blues ain't nothing but a good man feeling bad, thinking about the woman he once was with. In 1986, Hollywood made a movie about the legend of the crossroads. Ralph Macchio plays a kid trying to learn a lost song of Robert Johnson's. He breaks Willie Brown out of a prison and goes to Mississippi, where Willie tries to get his soul back from a deal he made at the Devil at the Crossroads, just like Robert Johnson did. Here's a clip from the Crossroads movie where Willie Brown is trying to get Lightning Boy to make the guitar sound just like the train. Hey, look at that train over there.
never get that lost song if you can't make the train talk. Anyway, the way you plan is gonna take you ten years. Well, then maybe I'll just have to do what you did, Willie. I'll go down to the crossroads and I'll strike up a deal with the devil and that'll take care of the whole thing. Don't you ever say that again. So did Robert Johnson, the man who, according to legend, sold his soul to the devil, come down to old Dockery Farms? Robert Johnson came here. Sunhouse came here. They actually all came here because it was... The drawing point was all these people that couldn't go anywhere. We'll get back to our search for the real crossroads in just a minute. But it's important to know why this place was so important to blues musicians back in the day, just as it is to this day. Here's more from our conversation with William Lester. What they would do is play for free, any of them, here at the commissary. There were no Jew joints in the Delta at the turn of the century, you know that. I mean, there were some in New Orleans, some in Memphis, but the Delta was cut and dry, life and death. You know, there was just nothing like that here. And so, these bluesmen weren't stupid. What they did was, they paid these people at this house, and they called it a frolicking house. They paid them to move all the furniture out of the house on Saturday afternoon. The bluesmen had bought giant mirrors for each wall. Remember, no indoor potties, no electricity, no radios, no fans, no air conditioning, no nothing. Had absolutely nothing. So, these giant mirrors would be on every wall in this house even though it was a small house. If there were two rooms, there'd be eight mirrors. They would put a coal oil lantern in front of each mirror at dark and raise the windows. That house would look like it's on fire compared to all the rest of them, which were pitch black dark. People couldn't even afford kerosene back then. And so, the bluesmen would play for free on the commissary front porch, walk across the one-lane bridge. That's the perfect setup, because they'd have takers right here. They wouldn't let you across the bridge unless you paid 25 cents to come to the frolicking house. So, a thousand grown men at 25 cents. You know, you just came from Oxford, right? I graduated from Ole Miss twice <laughs> over there. Some people say that means I can't read and write, but I can count. And that's 250 bucks a night. And a brand new car in 1915 didn't cost but $210. So, Charlie Patton was making enough money to buy a brand new car every Saturday night when he played, if he played at a big place like this. Now, the reason I know that, again, is because Tom Cannon told me one time Uncle Charlie came home in 1926, Mr. Bill, and he was wearing white man Sunday school clothes, and he was driving a brand new car. He said the rest of us blacks were barefoot and riding mules. And he said Charlie was a real man. And so, as you see, it's a different attitude and a different uh, type thing they were doing. There was something else that made the Dockery Plantations so popular with blues musicians. Here again is William Lester on the Chicago Railroad Connection. To feed these people, Mr. Will and his hands built a railroad from Dockery, Mississippi, all the way to Boyle through the woods, 12 miles. Because he had to have food. You, you got two or 3,000 hungry people every night. How are you going to feed them? There ain't enough mules and wagons in Mississippi to bring that much food to that many people. And so he built a train, uh, and he... Uh, would ship out goods on the train and bring in food and other uh, commodities on that train. But the real thing it did was it allowed them bluesmen to come from all over the Delta and ride out here to Dockery. If they didn't have a car, they didn't have to walk or ride a horse. They could ride the train. Train would pull up, let them off at the depot. They'd come down here play, gather up their couple hundred bucks, which was pretty good, get back on the train and go someplace else.
the next big thing that I think made B.B. King uh, call this the birthplace of the blues, and he calls Charlie Patton uh, the father of the blues. I think the reason he said that is because the education that took place on the commissary front porch could get on the train and be in Chicago in less than uh, 48 hours and play the same music they just heard here and learned here to a wide audience in Chicago. And so that blues left Dockery and went straight to the heart of, of, of being the foundation of all the other music that was to come after it, right straight back and forth. They get uh, worn out in Chicago playing what they were playing. They come back, learn something new, go back up there again. And a good many of them did that. And so I believe that's why, you know, it's called the birthplace of the blues. I know everybody wants to claim they're the birthplace of the blues, but uh, uh, I'll stick with B.B. We've stopped in Clarksdale, Mississippi, Rosedale, Mississippi, and now we're standing at Dockery Plantation between Ruleville and Cleveland, Mississippi on Highway 8. All three places where Robert Johnson supposedly sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads in order to play the blues better than anyone else at the time. But is it in Clarksdale? Is it in Rosedale? Or is it here at Dockery? William Lester tells us that Robert Palmer wrote a book that mentions where he thinks the real crossroads are. I've heard rumors that the crossroads might actually be at Dockery Plantation. Is there any truth to that? Well, if you read Robert Palmer's book, Deep Blues, uh, he tells you the story about about Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil. And the story goes um, from him, uh, and he interviewed, like I said, Howlin' Wolf and others that were alive when all this was supposed to have taken place, that he was playing with Charlie Patton and Willie Brown. Obviously, remember I told you Willie Brown was probably the best, uh, according to Eric Clapton, best guitarist ever. And those two were playing together. They were 15 years older than Robert, so they obviously had way more experience than he did. Uh, Robert Palmer says they came to where Willie and Charlie were. This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. Did we find the original Crossroads that Robert Johnson sang about in Crossroad Blues? When we come back, we'll have more answers and even more questions about this mysterious place in the Mississippi Delta, Dockery Plantation. Welcome back to Our American Stories. I'm Lee Habib. We return to our search for the legendary Crossroads, where according to legend, Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil in order to play a mean guitar. Here's Jesse Edwards, who takes us to the center of where it all began. We've stopped in Clarksdale, Mississippi, Rosedale, Mississippi, and now we're standing at Dockery Plantation between Ruleville and Cleveland, Mississippi on Highway 8. All three places where Robert Johnson supposedly sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads in order to play the blues better than anyone else at the time. But is it in Clarksdale? Is it in Rosedale? Or is it here at Dockery? William Lester tells us that Robert Palmer wrote a book that mentions where he thinks the real crossroads are. I've heard rumors that the crossroads might actually be at Dockery Plantation. Is there any truth to that? Well... If you read Robert Palmer's book, Deep Blues, uh, he tells you the story about, about Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil. And <clears throat> the story goes um, from him, uh, and he interviewed, like I said, Howlin' Wolf and others that were alive when all this was supposed to have taken place, that he was playing with Charlie Patton and Willie Brown. And obviously, remember, I told you Willie Brown was probably the best, uh, 
according to Eric Clapton, best guitarist ever. And those two were playing together. They were 15 years older than Robert, so they obviously had way more experience than he did. Uh, Robert Palmer says they came to where Willie and Charlie were. Well, that could have been here just as easy anywhere. On the train. Tried to play with them. Uh, he couldn't play as good, and they had probably been drinking a little bit and all that. And so they acted ugly to him and told him he was probably a worthless uh, guitar player. So what did he do? He took his wounds and went down to the depot down here and licked his wounds all night and, 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 and paced back and forth. The train didn't come to the next morning. So supposedly he walked down to the crossroads. These were not here. This wasn't here. But the next crossroads were. And that's where all the old people at Dockery said this story took place. And that he paced around at the, at the crossroads and supposedly could play better the next day. It sounds like we're getting closer. Here's more from Dockery Farms Foundation Executive Director, William Lester. Can you still cross right here? Or? Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, you just take your time and go across there. Mm-hmm. If you go up here to that big opening, you see to the left up there where that big tree sticking out? Yeah. That's the True Light Cemetery. Mm-hmm. And so I've always thought the song uh, that, that Robert's singing, when he says, when he leaves, there's two lights in behind. I never thought that. The, the depot was right across from the cemetery. I always thought he was saying, and there's true light in behind. You listen to the music and see. Because what would have been, if you were at the back of the train looking out the back as you were leaving Dockery, what would you see? True light cemetery. Yeah, you know, I, I never could understand what two lights in behind meant. But I understand what true light in behind meant. Because he was worried about dying and worrying about all that stuff. And there was that cemetery right there. The song that he's referring to is Robert Johnson's Love and Vain Blues. Take a listen. When the train it left the station Two lights on behind When the train and left the station was two lights on behind Well the blue light was my blue and the red light was my mind all my loves in vain Hee-hee. where it all happened i tell you what you gotta do see you going over there and start playing a piece why of course there's a fella i've got to see and if you're playing it right he's gonna come around yeah right willie who is this guy don't ask me who you know damn well who standing at the corner of lusk and walker road it's a dirt road just south of the dockery plantation white horse behind a fence wondering what I'm doing out here there's a dead possum in the middle of the crossroads with flies all over it is this where Robert Johnson came sold his soul to the devil I don't know does William Lester think Dockery Farms is home to the real crossroads have we finally narrowed down just exactly where this legendary intersection resides? I've been down there a bunch of times, and my hair ain't turned black, and I can't play the guitar. <laughs> so I'm not sure that the devil resides down at the crossroads. Not by a long shot. What Howlin' Wolf tells us what really happened. Howlin' Wolf says he got on the train here at Dockery, rode to Hazelhurst, because he had been down there before, got off on the platform. There was a woman he took a fancy to that was 25 years older than him, took a fancy to her, married her that same day, and started performing there and, and, and ran into a man named Ike Zimmerman, who was a minstrel player from the East Coast. It was in Hazelhurst. He listened to him play, asked him to play again. 
He couldn't play the same song twice exactly. So Ike told him, he said, you'll never be worth nothing unless you can play everything perfectly in three minutes because recordings don't last longer than three minutes. So he said, you got to get tight. You got to tighten up. So what did Robert do? Robert stayed in Hazelhurst almost a year. So supposedly it was overnight, but it really took a year of hard work. Got tired of that 25-year-old woman, divorced her, got back on the train, stepped off at Dockery, and he could play everything perfectly in three minutes. His whole repertoire. So the plot thickens. There's another person who backs up this version of the story that has Robert Johnson going to Hazelhurst to learn the blues over a much longer period of time than the legend suggests. Robert Johnson's own grandson, Stephen Johnson, tells the same story that we heard from William Lester. The main story that everybody wants to know and wants to remember him by is that he was at the crossroad and he sold his soul to the devil to learn how to play the way he did. That wasn't the case. From my research and from my study, I found out what made him as good as he became. During the time that he was supposed to have sold his soul to the devil, from 1930 to 1933, around that span of time, he actually left the Delta area where he couldn't hold a tune in the bucket. The guy was saying he just, man, they hate to hear him coming. So he left there and came back to his birthplace, Hazelhurst, Mississippi. During this time, he connected with a blues man named Ike Zimmerman. Ike Zimmerman became Robert Johnson's mentor. For two to three years, he became a student of Ike Zimmerman. During this time, and from talking to Ike Zimmerman's uh, daughters and some of his relatives that are still alive, Robert Johnson lived in Ike's home so much till Ike Zimmerman's daughter thought that was Robert Johnson was their brother. There was a cemetery right across from the home that Ike Zimmerman lived in. They would go in the cemetery and practice at night and different places, the courthouse steps of, of, of Hazelhurst, Mississippi. In other words, they just hung out and played music and, and practiced. When he went back to the depth after those three years was up, they heard a sound from this man. They heard music being played from Robert Johnson that they never knew existed. So they said, you have, man, you had to have done something. You must have sold your soul to the devil to be able to play like this. But I attribute it to practice, practice, and more practice. To be honest, I never believed we'd actually find the real crossroads. The truth is, there are many, many creepy old dirt roads and intersections in the state and all over the South that could be the real crossroads. That's assuming you believe that it's possible to summon the devil himself at an intersection to strike up a deal of some sort. The story of the crossroads itself isn't even native to Mississippi. It just happened to stick with Robert Johnson because he became famous. The true origins of crossroads lore can actually be traced all the way back to the 11th century when heathens would bring offerings to Odin at the crossroads. African voodoo has its own version of bringing offerings to various crossroads in order to mysteriously gain new skills. It's even noted in Brazilian mythology. Sometimes, if you want a good story, you just have to suspend disbelief. Lots of towns, lots of songs, lots of women, good times, bad times. 
only thing I want anybody to say is he could really play. He was good. This is Our American Stories, and when we come back, we'll hear a dramatic reading of the original Crossroads story from beginning to end as told by Mississippi bluesman Benny Goodman as we conclude our search for the legendary Crossroads. This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. We finish up our story about the crossroads with its conclusion, and we close with a dramatic reading of the story itself. Here's Jesse Edwards. From Clarksdale to Rosedale, the old dock replantation to Hazelhurst, Mississippi, in search for the legendary crossroads where Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil. We learned from William Lester, executive director of the Dockery Plantation Foundation, and Robert Johnson's own grandson, Stephen Johnson, that the real crossroads was in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, where Johnson learned to play from a man named Ike Zimmerman over a period of two to three years. Not quite as dramatic as the legend of selling your soul at the crossroads at midnight to the devil himself with the sudden ability to play the guitar like nobody else the next morning. So we've separated the truth from the myth, but not the man from the legend. We learned that sometimes it's better to have a good story to go along with what really happened, because the truth isn't always stranger than fiction. But even so, with that said, I can't help but believe that if there was a real crossroads, it would be here at Dockery Plantation. Let's hear the story of the crossroads told one more time by a Mississippi blues man named Henry Goodman. In this dramatic reading, Mr. Goodman recounts the story as told to him by his friend Robert Johnson in 1936. Robert Johnson been playing down in Yazoo City and over at Beulah, trying to get back up to Helena. Rod left him out on a road next to the levee, walking up on the highway, guitar in his hand propped up on his shoulder. October cool night. Full moon filling up the dark sky. Robert Johnson thinking about Sunhouse preaching to him. Put that guitar down, boy. You driving people nuts. Robert Johnson needing, as always, a woman and some whiskey. Big trees all around. Dark and lonesome road. A crazed, poisoned dog howling and moaning in a ditch alongside the road and sending electrified chills up and down Robert Johnson's spine, coming up on a crossroads just south of Rosedale. Robert Johnson, feeling bad and lonesome, thinks he knows people up the highway in Gunnison. Can get a drink of whiskey and more up there. Man sitting off to the side of the road on a log at the crossroads says, You're late, Robert Johnson. And Robert Johnson drops to his knees and says, Maybe not. The man stands up, tall, barrel-chested, and black as the forever-closed eyes of Robert Johnson's stillborn baby, and walks out to the middle of the crossroads where Robert Johnson kneels. 
He says, stand up, Robert Johnson. You want to throw that guitar over there in that ditch with that hairless dog and go back up to Robinsonville and play the harp with Willie Brown and son because you just another guitar player like all the rest? Or you want to play that guitar like nobody ever played it before? Make a sound like nobody ever heard before? You want to be the king of the Delta Blues and have all the whiskey and women you want? Uh, this sounded too good to be true to Robert Johnson. That's a lot of whiskey and a lot of women, devil man. I know you, Robert Johnson, says the man. Now, Robert Johnson feels the moonlight bearing down on his head and the back of his neck as the moon seems to be growing bigger and bigger and brighter and brighter. He feels it like the heat of the noonday sun bearing down and the howling and the moaning of the dog in the ditch penetrates his soul, coming up through his feet and the tips of his fingers, through his legs and arms, settling in that big empty place beneath his breastbone, causing him to shake and shudder like a man with the palsy. And Robert Johnson says, That dog gone mad. The man laughs. That hound belonged to me. He ain't mad. He's got the blues. I got his soul in my hand. The dog lets out a low, long, soulful moan, a howling like never heard before, rhythmic, syncopated grunts, yelps, and barks, seizing Robert Johnson like a grand male and causing the strings on his guitar to vibrate, hum, and sing with a sound dark and blue. Beautiful, soulful chords and notes possessing Robert Johnson, taking him over, spinning him around, losing him inside of his own self, wasting him, lifting him up into the sky. Now Robert Johnson looks over in the ditch and sees the eyes of the dog reflecting the bright moonlight, or more likely, so it seems to Robert Johnson, glowing on their own. A deep violet penetrating glow. And Robert Johnson knows and feels that he is staring into the eyes of a hellhound as his body shudders from head to toe. The man says, That dog ain't for sale, Robert Johnson. But the sound can be yours. That's the sound of the Delta Blues. And Robert Johnson says, I gots to have that sound, devil man. That sound is mine. Where do I sign? The man says, you ain't got a pencil, Robert Johnson. Your word is good enough. All you gotta do is keep walking north. But you better be prepared. There are consequences to this choice you're making, Robert Johnson. Be prepared for what, devil man? You know where you are, Robert Johnson? You are standing in the middle of the crossroads. At midnight, that full moon's gonna be right over your head. You take one more step, you'll be in Rosedale. You take this road to the east, you'll get back over to Highway 61 in Cleveland. Or you can turn around and go back down to Beulah. Or just go to the west and sit up on the levee and watch the river flow. 
But if you take one more step in the direction you're headed, you gonna be in Rosedale at midnight under this full October moon. And you are gonna have the blues like never known to this world. My left hand will be forever wrapped around your soul, and your music will possess all who hear it. That's what's gonna happen. That's what you better be prepared for. Your soul will belong to me. This is not just any crossroads, Robert Johnson. I put this X here for a reason. And I've been waiting on you. And Robert Johnson rolls his head around, his eyes upwards in their sockets to stare at the blinding light of the moon, which has now completely filled the pitch black delta night, piercing his right eye like a bolt of lightning as the midnight hour hits. He looks the big man squarely in the eyes and he says, Step back, devil man. I'm going to Rosedale. I am the blues. The big man moves to one side and says, Go on, Robert Johnson. You the king of the Delta Blues. Go on home to Rosedale. And when you get on up in town, you get you a plate of hot tamales because you're going to be needing something in your stomach where you're headed. And as he stepped forward over the crossroads and into Rosedale, Robert Johnson knew in his heart there would be no turning back. It's a legendary story, and in all probability, it's just a story. But it's a good one at that. But it's not all doom and gloom down there at Dockery Farm. People do come from all over the world looking for the lost crossroads. Let's hear one more time from Dockery Farm Executive Director William Lester, who tells us of another type of pilgrimage that people take every day. Is this big giant mule watering trough? Southern. Uh, it, 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 100 mules could drink it dry in one hour, 25 mules at a time. But the thing that makes it so important is that when they people first moved here uh, and they got baptized in the river, once in a while one of them would get eaten by an alligator or, or get bit by a snake. So I just assume that most people, when they get baptized, don't want to meet God on the same day that they get baptized. So they moved and started baptizing in this new water trough because it was clean, clear, pretty water. And so hundreds and hundreds of people were baptized there. I still have numerous people every year in their 80s and 90s come back here to want to see where they were baptized as children. And so it's a pretty neat, and so it's a baptismal font too. Even though I came up with more questions than answers on my search for the crossroads, we did find a few things along the way. We found most likely the real birthplace of the blues, where men, women, and children would gather from miles around just to hear men play guitar in the swampy heat of the hot summer night. We found the real history of where Robert Johnson learned to play the guitar. We found a beautiful part of this country that has to be seen and felt to be believed. I've been hearing all my life about the hypnotic effect this place can have on someone, and believe me, it's real. Don't just take my word for it. You need to see it and feel it for yourself. It's a slow and rhythmic pulse. Something that takes over your mind and your soul. Something that gets down deep under your skin and you don't know why. But it's there. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. To learn more about the history of Dockery Plantation, from William Lester, you can visit him online at dockeryfarms.org. To hear this story again, or to share it with your family and or friends, visit ouramericannetwork.org.
stories and for the next half hour we'll be discussing a big topic the state of love on college campuses and i might add this probably applies to the millennial generation and maybe even to people in their early 30s but the focus here is on one particular college campus and one particular professor and we're fortunate to be joined by one of the nation's true experts and contrarians on the topic and that's Kerry Cronin, a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Kerry, thanks so much for joining us. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, Kerry, first off, you're a philosopher. And, and so <laughs> love, by the way, love is not something that uh, philosophers ignore. Um, but, no. but dating, probably. And <laughs> I'm not sure Plato dug deep into dating. Um, <laughs> but how did you become such an expert? that students, your, your, the people and the kids you teach, mentor, coach, dubbed you the love doctor. Is it through oh the philosophy classes or something more? Tell us a little bit about this title you've earned at Boston College. Well, it is, it is kind of funny to me. I, I, I don't consider myself to be an expert on this, but I love talking to students about their lives and about their choices and the ways uh, that they make their life decisions and their moral decisions. Um, I think it does, it has come, this whole thing, me being involved in this and talking to students about it, had emerged in the context of philosophy classes that I teach. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at texts that, in which we're thinking about friendship and, and relationships and the importance of that in a community and in a person's life and flourishing. And so we sort of get to these kinds of questions all the time. But, but it was conversations with students outside of class, actually, that led me to talk really specifically about dating and hookup culture and to find out what the heck is going on out there. And students over the years, probably, I've been probably talking to students about this for eight to ten years now very openly, and they have just been wonderful uh, in telling, in being very upfront about what, what dating and hookup culture is like in college, what, how they feel about it, what their anxieties, their fears, and their desires are. So it's been wonderful. I, everything I know, I've learned from them. And how did you stumble upon the specific star- talks you had about dating and relationships? How did you stumble upon this absence in their lives? Well, you know, it was interesting. I, I had a conversation with a group of students about, gosh, it had to be 10 years ago now. I had I had worked with some students on a student program, and we were going. We went out for ice cream after the program, just because it had gone well. And I was the facilitator of a discussion. It was a public discussion on on faith, actually. And and so we went out for ice cream afterwards. And they were all seniors. There were eight seniors, and we we were just talking about life and life after graduation and that sort of thing. And I 
after talking about jobs and grad schools and different options, I, I said, you know, what about, what about the people you're dating? And, and I got a real blank stare from them all. And I thought, what's going on? And they said, oh, we don't do that dating thing anymore. Where that's, we just don't do that. That's not really done here. And I, I pressed them on it. And after that, I just started asking questions regularly about it. And students told me a lot uh, about hookup culture. I learned things that I, I thought I knew about. I learned things that I never knew about. I, I've, and I've thought about these things with students for years since. Well, and it's interestingly enough, you, you learned, I, I guess, that the hookup culture, just as years ago there were dating rules, Carrie, yeah. that the hookup yeah. culture itself had rules. <laughs> you know, what I heard from students a lot at the beginning was, well, you know, we don't, we don't really date. We would like to keep things much more casual. And that there was this idea that, that the hookup culture was the casual thing and, and that that was the easy thing. But when I, when I listened to them, I realized, that that it it actually looks like it's super casual and that there are no rules, but there are lots of rules. And I say to students all the time, and they and they all agree, you have to know the rules to participate in hookup culture. Everybody knows them, but nobody speaks about the rules. And um, and if you break the rules, you're out. You know, nobody wants to have anything to do with you. So right. So you they they figure the rules out pretty quick. And 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 the rules include you know so. Typically, when I talk to students, I'll, I'll run through some, like, the top ten rules, you know, rules like don't talk about it while it's happening. Don't ask, what does this mean? You know, don't, you got to learn how to use texting, you know, don't stay over, know where your, you know, know where your earrings are so you can grab them when you're leaving, know where your shoes are, you know, don't be awkward, you know, uh, there's, there's all kinds of things that, that are part and parcel of the hookup culture that, that students know and that they figure out the rules. But as I say to them, isn't it strange that we think there are no rules and that dating is so formal and everybody's so terrified of asking somebody out for a cup of coffee, but to get involved in hookup culture looks like it's ordinary and casual and that there aren't rules, but, but we know that. We know there are. are. You know, I want, to play yeah. a, I want to play a clip from you. I'm going to hold on a response, and then we'll get the response on the other side of a break, Carrie. But it's, okay, a, it's sure. a clip Thanks. of you and a talk you gave to the Love and Fidelity Network. And then again, we'll, okay. ask, we'll, ask, we'll talk to you about it right after the break. I know that students at, at my university are incredibly ambitious, smart, wonderful, socially just, interested in other people until about Thursday afternoon, right? And then the nighttime culture sort of gets going, and suddenly it's, it's, a, different, it's a whole different scene. It's a whole different scene. And we're going to get to the other side of that scene in a bit. Uh, we're joined by Kerry Cronin. She's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. But she's known at the school as the love doctor. And it's because of some of the things she's been doing with the kids as it relates to their lives and to this thing that for millennium men and women did called dating. But the millennials, it turns out, are not doing much of and I think this will interest every parent listening. It'll certainly listen, uh, excite the millennials listening because this is their lives we're talking about. And not in judgment. None of that here. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And more after this moment with The Love Doctor. With the roof right over our heads, we'll share the shelter. 
This is Lee Habib, and the subject right now is dating, or the lack thereof. Something very new, actually, to millennials. They're, they're not doing it like we used to. Why? What's going on? Nobody knows about this better. No one's dug deeper into the subject. You don't know her, but now you do. And we're going to get to know her better over the coming months, and I hope years because I don't think he can ever stop talking about a subject like this. We're talking to Kerry Cronin, who's a professor of philosophy at Boston College, but is known as the love doctor by the students there who adore her for daring them to do something that people have been doing for centuries. And it's a little thing called dating. Where we last picked up, Kerry was describing this Thursday night culture. The kids are a certain kind of wonderful child all week long. And then, well, the werewolves of London come out, so to speak, and something starts to happen. Well, let's, uh, let's continue, uh, Carrie. Go from there. So that's funny. That's a great description of it. I, I often say to students, you know, the students I, I, I work with and live with here at Boston College are lovely. They are just hardworking, lovely young people. And they, they're eager to please. They're eager to work hard and compete. And they, they hold a door for you at 50 paces. It's exhausting how nice they are. <laughs> but then the nighttime culture is, is really aggressive. It's, it's very aggressive in terms of competitive drinking. And the hookup culture is very aggressive. And they feel it. They're, they're, I find, and we we all know that college students in the United States now are are very much uh, affected by anxiety and stress, and I think this has a lot to do with it. Um, they're they're busy in their daytime lives, but at night uh, it's it's rough out there, and they're trying to to find their way and find their work out important questions about who they are and what they want in their lives. But there's not. There isn't a culture that's helping them at all. No, and you know it, it's always been tough to be 18. Uh, so let's not forget that. And it's hard for us at 30, 40, I'm, I'm in my 50s to remember. But my goodness, think about it just for a minute. And you'll wish you weren't 18 again after you think about it, actually. But for those of us who aren't aware, Gary, can you paint a picture of what this, quote, nighttime hookup culture and scene looks like? And why exactly it's so appealing in the end, or maybe not appealing, but what draws these students into it? Sure. I think, you know, what what happened... In the on the college campus scene, I think, and I, I'm mostly talking about uh, four-year residential colleges because I, I think at, at when I go to schools and at which the populations are uh, are not residential students, you don't you don't see this as much. People are working part-time jobs or working to get through school, and they don't have time for this. But at four-year residential schools, students will often, you know, they they come off of really stressful days. And the weekend, uh, on the weekends, they, they pre-game parties, which means, you know, they get drunk before they even go to parties, mostly because, for instance, our campus is, is mostly a dry campus, and so they are ostensibly not drinking on campus, right. but they, they have to find their ways to drink. So they go to parties, and they've got to get drunk fast. You know, the keg party script is you've got to get drunk fast before the RAs or the police come and break it up. So... So it's much more of a shots culture, if you will. You know, it used to be years ago, beer was 
the, the drink of choice for, you know, Animal House kind of that scenario. But now they're drinking hard liquor because that's easier to, to get in to, to a dorm. They're, it's, so they're drinking hard liquor fast, and women are drinking and are binge drinking at the same rates that men are. And so, so everybody's trashed, and, and, and everybody's sort of hyper-competitive because they've, these young people, these millennials, have been competing their whole lives. You bet. You know, this is, this is definitely the organization kid that David Brooks described years ago. Yep. These students are they're highly programmed, they're highly competitive, highly achieving, and they want to achieve in their social lives, too. And this script, the hookup script, yeah. has really become such a dominant script, and it's, it's associated with the keg party script. But it would, be wrong to, would, it, would it be wrong for me to assume also that uh, these high achievers are also, in a sense, conformists? I mean, they so want to get approval from their superiors, from their teachers, that in the end they'll conform to whatever the norm is in this respect? Sure. Yeah, absolutely, because they've been taught, you know, they've been taught throughout their academic careers and their sports careers. You know, many of the students we have here were varsity athletes in high school. They're, you know, they know how to, how to, to find out what the formula of success is and get themselves there. Yep. They know how to do it. And, and hookup culture gives them, it gives them check marks. You know, I've, I've hooked up with this many people. I've hooked up with this person who I think is good looking, this person who other people want, you know, it's, it gives them markers that they can achieve. And, and as I say to students, this is, this is a movement to an exterior set of, of checkboxes. You know, this is, but, but it has lots of ramifications you on bet. your interior life. You've got lots of consequences. And we're talking, by the way, yeah. folks, with Kerry Cronin, and she's a professor of philosophy at Boston College, but on the side, she teaches a dating course there that's standing room only. The kids come from everywhere because she actually challenges them to leave this hookup culture and try and do something actually that turns out to be really daring, and that is to ask someone out on a date. Before we get into that, though, Kerry, what are the five types of hookups? And folks, parents, take notes. Talk to your kids about this. But what are they? <laughs> Right. So over the years, I, uh, when I give talks to students, um, I find that what you have to do when you're talking to students about this so that you're not coming off in, in a really judgmental way and putting them in a, in a posture of, uh, in a defensive posture is you've got to use humor and you've got you to ask them to tell you what's going on. And what I've heard from students is uh, that there's lots of different reasons and types of hookups. And, and I often say to students, so there's the there's the pure hookup, which is a one-time deal. You know, you just meet a person at a party or you, you know, and you hook up with them and that's that and you never hear from them again. Or maybe you see them on campus and you do this sort of campus look away, which is uh, what our students call it. You just kind of look in the other direction or pretend yep. you're looking on your phone. There's the regular hookup, which is, you know, you hooked up with somebody and then maybe you see them at a party the next week or the week after that, and you kind of think, well, that worked out well, and you get a look, and you understand that that's going to happen again, and maybe a couple of times. Then there's friends with benefits, which I always say to students, that's crazy. I don't, that's not what I do with my friends, and Aristotle <laughs> doesn't describe friendship that way. So no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> then there's, then there's, you know, there's, there's different uh, sort of types of hookup, hookups, like revenge hookups or, you know, or, or, uh, after you break up, uh, reuniting with the old flame hookups. There's, 
You know, and actually, there's many more than five. And the reason that I know there are many more than five is because every time I go to a school, students add to the list, <laughs> which is scary. <laughs> but when you can get them to laugh about it, that's also when you can get them to start reflecting on it. When you, when you will laugh with them and say, isn't this a little strange and ridiculous and actually not what you really long for and what you really desire? Oh, you life. bet. You know, I'm uh, a, I'm a Christian, but one of the books that influenced my life the most, actually, and weirdly, because I tell my friends this, and they go, "What?" But it was Martin Buber's "I, I and Thou," and it, it, it's always that space between the, the "I and Thou" that we can we can draw people in, and, and too often people of faith don't allow that space to not only other people of faith, but people not of faith. Uh, yeah, that's we, right. we have about a, a minute here. We're going to hold you over and do another segment, Carrie, because we just can't stop talking about this. <laughs> but what do you think okay. is the cause of this present culture full of hookups but absent of love? Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's the deep question. That's the $64,000 question. I, I, think, I think people are looking for an easy way to, to try to, to put their toe into you know, the water and, and try to find love without any risk. So when I talk to students about dating, actually, it's, it ends up being mostly about courage, not love. Yeah, but, you know, in the end, what did Aristotle say about courage? It's the, it's the, it's the first requirement for all of the other virtues? Or Absolutely. something like that. And, and how can you have love without courage? We're going to hold here and we're going to continue this fascinating conversation about our kids, about ourselves in the end, uh, and about life. Because it, any of us who've ever said, I love you to anybody and meant it, know they're the three hardest words to say. And if you don't hear them back, my goodness, this is the hardest thing in the world. And that's why you don't say it, because you're not sure you'll hear it back. We're talking to Carrie Cronin, and she is the doctor of love at Boston College, and she also happens to teach philosophy at Boston College. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and more after this. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're talking to Kerry Cronin. And she's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. But she has an even more serious job there in some respects, and that's counseling and coaching her young students how to do a thing called date. And in the end, how to think about love, because we all think about it, and it's a scary thing. And Kerry, thanks so much for joining us for the hour here. You bet. I wanted to read to you something from that Love and Fidelity Network interview that one girl had shared. 
because I think it's fascinating, and then we can pick up on this love theme. Here's what she said. She said, I have loved my time at Boston College. I have grown intellectually. I've made incredible friends. I've had amazing relationships in Boston. I have a job lined up. I'm a better sister, a better daughter, a better roommate, a better friend now. And then she said, quote, but the only area in my life in which I have not grown is the area uh, of understanding of what I want out of love, what I want out of romance, what I understand about my own desire, my own passions. In this area, not only have I not developed, I think I have regressed. I think I am more scared, more unsure of myself. And I know myself on these things less than I did when I graduated from high school. My goodness, what a self-aware human being. What a beautiful human being to even write this. Carrie? Yeah, I remember that young woman very well. Um, she was actually part of a focus group that we ran here. when We were trying to figure out, uh, uh, some, some of the administrators here at Boston College tried to ran focus groups with students to try to figure out what was going on in terms of hookup culture and dating and relationships and uh, sexuality. And, and so we had a number of really wonderful students who came and shared, shared really deep and profound reflections like that with us. It was stunning to me. And when I, when I heard that young woman speak, I, honestly, I was heartbroken. Because, you know, we pride ourselves, especially here, this is a Jesuit university, we pride ourselves on educating the whole person. And, and to me, that's unacceptable. We're not doing our job if we're not helping students to navigate the most important parts of their lives. Yep. Uh, and that, that's just heartbreaking to me. You know, man is not an economic animal alone. And, you know, the great Alexander Solzhenitsyn leaves a Soviet gulag, comes to the United States, and everybody thinks he's going to hammer communism. But he does quite the opposite. He gives a lecture to everybody about the downsides of capitalism. He's no friend of communism, but he talks about the material and how the material can actually squelch out the spiritual and kill love. And no one was expecting that from Alexander Solzhenitsyn and why it's one of the great talks in American history. By the way, you can go to Great American Rhetoric and you can look up Solzhenitsyn and look under A, not S. That's how they put everything there. We want to play a clip for you, Kerry, uh, again from that a talk at the Love and Fidelity Network and pick up on this duty and responsibility of a Jesuit school, for goodness sake, teaching the whole person. I am terrified to start recognizing that universities and colleges today are places of great opportunity, great ideas, great ambition and achievement, but not great love. That between the ages of 18 and 22, or 23 if you really just need to take an extra year, (laughs) or 21 if you're like really excelling, like while you're here in college, this is a great time to fall in love, but you probably won't. And it's not because you don't want to, but it is because there is a culture that has sprung up, that has emerged, that's not going to support you finding a great love alongside finding great ideas, great opportunities, great conversations, great friendships, great ambitions, great, great accomplishments. To find a great love is also something we would, we would really like to help you with. You kind of have to do it on, yourself, by, on your own, but we're certainly not helping to scaffold that, a culture that would help you do that. I'm not sure what else you can add, but tell me what really, <laughs> what dug you in there, and why, do you, why did universities not talk about this, and what happened? 
No, that's a great question too. I mean, I, I you know, I think in the United States, the the universities, colleges and universities have really moved away from the in loco parentis model, and so by and large, even though you know, parents are entrusting for for a lot of money, parents are entrusting their their young sons and daughters to our care. The the general rule of thumb is stay out of their business, and and there's something important in that insight. Mm-hmm. But what happened was, I think we we went to to a far extreme on that, and and I find that that college students really want a lot of help, and they're not afraid of older adults uh, helping them with things. Uh, Unlike previous generations who didn't trust anybody over the age of 30, <laughs> right. I find that millennials crave conversations about their lives. They, they crave coaching, if you will. Um, I find that when I talk to uh, young male students, for instance, uh, as well as young female students, actually, when I think about it, they are really receptive to life coaching sort of attitudes, and they, they, the more that I talk to them about this, the more they want to meet with me and talk to to me about this. And so they're really craving some help, but I think that we're assuming that they don't want any help and that they don't want to be told how to live. Well, as a matter of fact, they don't want us to be overly directive or overly moralizing or judgmental, but they want conversation. And it's, you know, it's, it's not easy to walk that fine line uh, in having conversations that, that are helpful, but not intrusive, you know, but I think, um, I think faculty and administrators and staff members who, who are happy in their own lives and who are really, um, who have, who have their own children, perhaps, uh, who are going through these kinds of things, they can be really helpful, but most people are sort of nervous about talking about these kinds of things. You know, I, I'd tell you a story. I was on a plane, uh, probably about a, well over a year ago, attractive young lady was sitting next to me and I was writing a column and battling out a column about love. Um, and I was getting close to my little girl's birthday and I had never known anything like that kind of love for a child. I'd known a love for, for a woman finally in my, and I had waited way too long to know that because I actually was a millennial before there were millennials in this respect. I was afraid of saying I love you to somebody and I confess this in this column. I had never properly said it to a woman until I was 41 years old because I was afraid of the rejection. Who knows why? I, I don't know, but I didn't. And I write about this, and then I get to the part of the column where I'm typing, and I'm going to read you some of the words, because I could feel her reading this. And as she was reading it, she, I could feel her crying as I was reading it. And I wrote, as I quoted a line from Julian Barnes, and Barnes, Barnes had said, I was 32 when we met and 62 when she died, speaking of his wife. She was the heart of my life and the life of my heart. You put two things together, Julian Barnes wrote, that have not been put together before, and the world has changed. And then I wrote, that's the power of love. The world is changed by it. Without love, the world is barren. The day my wife told me she was pregnant, my world changed again. In what is the greatest love song ever written about childbirth, the narrator in Bruce Springsteen's Living Proof says this, In his mother's arms, it was all the beauty I could take, like the missing words to some prayer that I could never make. It was and is all the beauty I can take, watching our daughter grow and laugh and play, the heart of my life, the life of my heart, the answer to a prayer I never even knew to pray. I turned around and she was weeping. 
And I started a conversation as deep as I'd ever had with another human being who was about to get married and was crying, she told me, because I asked her why. Her husband just told her she did not want to have kids. Her husband-to-be. On the back end, we're going to talk about what happened there, Kerry, and then talk to you about some of those same kinds of conversations I am sure you have had with these young people. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And we're talking for the hour about dating, about love, with the love doctor and a professor of philosophy at Boston College, Kerry Cronin. you're listening to alan jackson and it was a day when it was that simple and it was never simple so let's not go back and be too nostalgic but back in the day my parents so many folks i know the guy met a girl he asked her out and if it was right they moved along and they started a family no existential dread no i'm not ready yet no let's hook up just didn't exist or if it did no one it wasn't codified into the culture and we're talking for the hour with the doctor of love, who also happens to be the professor of philosophy at Boston College. And that's a, that's a nickname she's been given, by the way, on campus because of this class we're about to describe and discuss. Carrie Cronin joins us. Carrie, so you've, you've diagnosed the problem, you've gotten to know the kids, and you start a dating class. Talk about that. <laughs> well, it, was, it wasn't actually a dating class. I, I might, maybe I would get fired for that, but it was a, <laughs> it was a senior capstone seminar. You know, many colleges and universities have these uh, capstone seminars. It was a one-credit-only, pass-fail seminar, once-a-week meeting with juniors and seniors to sort of discuss, you know, so what, what, what things have you discovered about yourself and life and your education? What questions do you still have? And we talked about sort of large things like the future and the role of money in your life and that sort of thing. And, and I, uh, I used to save two weeks to discuss relationships, friendships and romantic relationships. And, and after I had discovered that uh, this, the hookup culture was such a dominant script, I decided in one of these seminars that I would ask my students to go on a, tr- what, a traditional date. And I 
they all seemed pretty excited about that. The first group was about 15 students in a class. And so I said, oh, you know, could you, by the end of the semester, could I want you to ask somebody out and go on a date. And so week after week, they came back and they kept talking about it. Oh, I don't know who to ask. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to do this. Blah, blah, blah. And I, I kept wondering why this was so complicated. Well, we get to the end of the semester and only one of the 15 students had been able to do it which I thought was really shocking because, again, these are really bright, wonderful, beautiful students. And so the next semester, during the drop ad period, I said to them, you're going to have an assignment to go on a, to ask somebody on a date, go on a date, and, and re- write a reflection about the date, and you have to do this assignment. I won't pass you if you don't. It was a requirement. <laughs> it was a requirement. That's I had to good. make it a requirement because yep. I realized they would just keep talking about it and talking about it and never doing it. So... So I said, you could drop the class right now. I think three, three students dropped out right away, but three more came in. And so that second semester, everybody did it, but it was sort of a mess. They didn't know what they were doing. It, you know, we had lots of, lots of students would come in and tell funny stories about it. So by the third semester, I, I sort of wisened up. I, now, when I give this assignment, I give this assignment now in my uh, freshman, to my freshmen who take a great books class with me. Um, and I, I, I give them a, a sheet of paper that has instructions. I had to come up with a set of instructions because what I realized was that hookup culture had not only become the dominant social script, dating as a script had been completely lost. They didn't know how to do it. Yep. And so I, I needed to give them a set of instructions so they have to follow a set of my rules um, and on the back side of the, the sheet is a list of 50 inexpensive dates around Boston, you know, so that it doesn't have to be a burden. Yeah. And, uh, and so from there, we've gone in every semester. Uh, I give it now to freshmen because, you know, freshmen are uh, – they, my students this year will have this assignment in February. I, I make it an optional assignment. Uh, it's a, they'll get bonus points for it on an exam. And so they all jump on that. Uh, but I, honestly, I've had students, I had students who, who started coming to that class where it was required, and students would say to me openly, in front of other students, I am taking this class so that you will make me go on a date. I want to do this. Wow, that's fascinating. And I would say, or you could just go on a date. You don't need to take a whole class <laughs> just to do that. But it's so outside of the norm yep. that they need an excuse. Well, it's and interesting, I'm, Carrie. What's interesting is that they, it seems to me they're more at ease hooking up than just sure asking somebody out. And that's remarkable. I wanted to rip through some of these rules of yours, if you don't mind. Sure. And one yeah. of them, by the way, uh, at, like on the top of it all, is that uh, obviously it's alcohol-free because we yeah. all know that what the students use alcohol for does not at all lend itself to getting to know someone. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It, it's yep. to not know them. That's why right. we do it and allow us to do things we wouldn't do but for the alcohol. So here were the nine rules. You must ask someone who you are legitimately interested in, and you must ask them in person. Texts can be sent to arrange a time and place, but the invitation must be extended face-to-face, too. The date should last between 60 and 90 minutes, no more, no less. It should be a daytime date. You must pay for a date is four, but you should spend no more than $10. Five, there's no alcohol. Six, no physical interaction. Seven, you are allowed to say that it is not for an assignment, that it is for an assignment. Eight, you can only divulge your plan with three people. Nine, when you ask the person, 
Plan for your date no more than three days in advance. And 10, optional, submit a two-page reflection paper to Professor Cronin while this assignment is ungraded and it would be impossible to ensure its completion. It is a worthwhile endeavor. So go forth, students of Boston College, and find love. And if not love, then at least a story. That is so delightful, and I'm just <laughs> shocked that we are, we're, we've come to this, but thank you for doing it. What's the reaction now? You've gone from 15 students. How many students are interested in this now at Boston College? Oh, well, you know, that's the most fun. The, the most fun thing that I realized that happened um, that, that happens uh, is this. I actually am, in any given semester, I'm giving the dating assignment to maybe 25 students. But although I, I give a lecture on campus each year, uh, in, so, and usually there's three, three to 400 students at that lecture, and I say, if you're here, you have the dating assignment now. But the interesting thing is that, that I found that happened was not that just 15 or 25 or even 300 students went on dates. What happened was as soon as the dating assignment was on a piece of paper, students would bring it back to their dorm rooms, their apartments. And, and here, most of the upper class students live in apartment-style um, suites. And so they have six or eight roommates. And so what was happening was they were bringing it back to their apartments, and it was people were discussing it. It became such a buzz. Wow. And, and it really is. Everybody knows here if students start to ask you out, you'll, they'll often hear someone respond, oh, is this a Cronin date? So, <laughs> and I always say to students, that's fine. That is Blame fine. it on me. Exactly. You know, because that'll make you feel a little less nervous, and it can be funny and something to talk about for the first five minutes of the date and laugh about. That's great. Make it a fun thing. That it, is. It, it's that, supposed to be fun. It, it is supposed to be fun, and it, it's delight. Right. It's a delight, and it's supposed to be scary, too. And think exactly. about how many scary things are fun. You know, we go up in, in gigantic slides and pummel on down and pay money for that. But that, that's dating. <laughs> Let's face it. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, you, you know, you, you have all these kids who've done these dates. Um, mm. Can you talk about some student reflections from their dates. Give us a couple of, you know, what have you oh, learned sure. from your students? What have you taught them and what have you learned from them? Oh, absolutely. I have learned so much from them. It's, it's, it's outrageous how much I have learned from them. I have, I've got uh, a locked file drawer full of these reflections. And, and one of the things that I want to point out that I do in the class too is they're not only giving me uh, their reflections after they've gone on a date, but we, we find class time for them to talk about it with each other and tell the story of their dating. And what they mostly want to talk about is the story of the ask, that, that asking someone out in person is, is the big hurdle, and it's the thing that they love to, to retell. And what I have I've found in Reflections is some of my favorites are uh, pieces of, refl- of student reflections have to do with how anxious they feel during the ask. I had a student uh, years ago who wrote um, this beautiful reflection on on asking a guy out, and she said, she described it thus, she said, my heart was pounding and my palms were sweating as I I approached my target. And when when I read it, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, wait a minute, what's going on? But these are the kinds of ways that they feel, and they, they write beautifully. But, you know, you, do you know what's really going on there? I think what's going on there is it's the red badge of courage. 
People love to write about that which they overcome. This that's makes them exactly this right. makes them proud. And my goodness, that's better than hey, here's how I hooked up. And now it's one of those dark memoirs about how someone took too many pills and offed herself. Uh, Carrie, exactly right. I, I can't that's tell exactly right. you. You know, the, the, your point about stories is absolutely correct. One of the one of the things I say to students about hooking up is. That, that that's part of the game of hooking up, right, is to, you know, on Sunday morning or Monday morning telling the story of who you hooked up with on the weekend and getting the points for it and the social status for yep, it. Yep. But telling the story of going on a date, students will say, wow, people came up to me and congratulated me for having asked somebody out and people are impressed that I did that. They're experiencing their own bravery, their own courage, and as I often point out to them, you're for the first time asking for what it is you truly long for, what you, you really want, you what you bet. are nervous about, and what you think maybe this could really lead to something. And, and what we were almost encoded by God to, to ask for, too. That's right. Carrie Cronin, thank you so much for what you do. In fact, one couple even got married because of the yeah. work that this professor did. The Doctor of Love, Professor of Philosophy at Boston College. Carrie Cronin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Lee. It was really a joy. You bet.